Welcome to the Hey You Podcast, brought to you by Hayatin Education. I'm Matthew Hayatin, and today I'm talking with Dr. Keith Harris, the rogue historian and author of Across the Bloody Chasm, The Culture of Commemoration Among Civil War Veterans. Keith is with us to reframe the modern battle over Civil War memory and recover the intentions of Civil War veterans on both sides of the Potomac. Before we dig into the book, I wanted to ask you, because you and I had chatted about this over like the water tower years ago. I thought it'd be fun to talk about your doctoral experience, especially at a place like UVA and what it was like for you culturally. Cause I've just thought it must've been so interesting for you to have been experiencing modern day Virginia, but also studying civil war and commemorative ethos and then having experiences as someone who was maybe a little bit of an other compared to the natives of Virginia <laughs> as a student and a grad student. What was that like for you? Well, I mean, it was an interesting experience all the way around. Um, it, it's uh, going to Virginia from Los Angeles was a bit of a culture shock for me, you know. So, uh, my wife and I we we got a place outside of Charlottesville, um, and it was uh, a you know small rural community, um, people who lived there all their lives, and I kind of came out you know from somewhere else, and I did kind of feel out of place. Um, and so that was, that was strange. That was a strange experience. You know, I'm coming from Los Angeles, it's 9 million people here going to a little small, tiny community where everybody knew each other it was sort of weird. Um, so there's that, uh, so that was a bit of a culture shock. It took us a while to get adjusted to that. Not even sure we ever did really get adjusted to it. And, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to come back to Los Angeles when I was finished uh, with that experience. But, um, you know, I, I'm a Southerner myself anyway, I'm, I'm from Alabama originally, though I grew up on the West coast. Um, and so I kind of get the Southern thing, sort of, you know, and Virginia is in this sort of weird kind of in-between period. Virginia is a, uh, is a state that I think has an identity crisis a lot. They don't know whether they're the uppermost state of the South or the lowermost state of the North in many cases. And, and, and I think that, you know, there's always that conflict kind of going on. And that conflict's been going on for, for a while, um, I think. And now with, you know, when I was there in the, the early 2000s, um, uh, 2000, I, I left in 2009, and um, and it was in a this sort of period where Civil War memory was beginning to really become a salient feature in people's conversation all the time. The issue with monuments, the issue with uh, Confederate flags, and what that means to for just not only Southern identity, specifically white Southern identity, but Virginia identity. Um, you know, because they were such an important uh, important state in the formation of the Union and, and, and all these sorts of things. And all these kind of things keep getting batted around. Now, in the last 10 years, you know, this has reached a climax. And now it's, you know, the, the monuments are coming down. This is, this is huge. You know, I mean, I, I used to visit these monuments regularly, uh, you know, both as a student and as a teacher. Uh, when I was teaching at UVA as a, as a, a graduate student, uh, teacher's assistant, and then I had my own courses, we would go uh, to these monuments. And the monuments are great tools, really, I think, for conversation um, as historical artifacts. Uh, but at the same time, they're profoundly offensive to a good number of, of Virginia citizens. And, and of course, through uh, legislative process, these are now in the process of coming down. Um, and so it's this, you know, seeing it from, uh, looking at it from the sidelines on the West coast, watching all this kind of stuff happen. I can kind of, if I, if I look back, I can see the roads, the road marks, you know, leading up to this, um, you know, and so it's interesting, I think, uh, as a, as a, I consider myself a West coast guy, you know, being there sort of at the formation of a lot of this stuff, uh, the recent iterations of it anyway, that people have been mad at these art, these things for a decades but but the recent most recent iterations of it watching it from the sidelines has been a very unique experience i think uh, having been in it um you know uh, there's 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 always a bunch, multiple sides to any story 
Um, but it's interesting where these things are going, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, just to frame the conversation now, I'll mention the title of the book again, because I want a lot of people to know about it and, and also to find you on, on your website, uh, Across the Bloody Chasm, the culture of commemoration among Civil War veterans. I think it was a great intro you gave, Keith, because we're going to be talking not just about uh, culture of veterans, but but what it means to civilians and to obviously the offspring of veterans at a generational level as time marches on. I think it would be helpful. I was thinking about your introduction that I reread again. Um, and if you could share a bit about the focus of the study itself that was you know, in the soil of this book, which was to recover the intentions of Civil War veterans on both sides of the Potomac and, and to wrestle with reconciliation on their own terms and to sort of unearth what you felt might have been in danger of disappearing mm-hmm. or being misunderstood at least. Good. I'm glad you brought up the word intentions because intentions here is extraordinarily important. I think intentions make a great deal of difference. Uh, we, 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 a lot of times we tend to look at outcomes and, and, you know, when we look at the outcomes of things, we, we maybe lose the intention of, of the historical actors sometime. Um, and, uh, that's something that I really wanted to engage because I wanted to know what civil war veterans actually had in mind, uh, when they commemorated their effort. Now in the, around 2000 or so, uh, after, you know, uh, a number of different publications in the end of the 20th century, uh, people taking on uh, commemorative efforts uh, by veterans and, and various other people. Uh, the, the sort of culminating work of that is sort of the synthetic work. One of the great you know, books on Civil War memory was David Blight's uh, Race and Reunion, uh, one of the most important books ever written on Civil War memory. And, and I think that it's, it's, uh, it's right about a lot of things, but it's wrong about one thing. Um, and this is the, the, the piece that I took on and, and what David Blight says and um, rather forcefully says and has become sort of the almost a truism uh, for a number of people uh, is that uh, uh, segregationists and emancipationists uh, or, or excuse me, segregationists and reconciliationists locked arms at the end of the Civil War and decided based on their mutual racism that they would celebrate or commemorate the Civil War on Southern terms, meaning that they would they would write out the experience of emancipation and freedom out of the story and then celebrate it as a white, you know, a white experience. Uh, the Civil War is sort of a whitewashed, you know, the divisive issues are gone, right? Slavery and emancipation really didn't have anything to do with the war. It was really more about things like, uh, you know, fighting for what one believed to be right, for uh, bravery, fortitude, virtue, all those kinds of things, the celebratory stuff. Right. And then in order to, to reconcile, to come back as a nation peacefully, they had to take the nasty stuff out of the story. Right. Uh, slavery. Uh, and, and since so many you know, white Southerners would be opposed to anything resembling an emancipationist cause, they had to write that out, too. OK, well, that's a that's it's a very forceful argument. And if you look at the history of, the, of Jim Crow and you look at the uh, and if you look at the history of segregation in the South uh, all through the 20th century into the 1960s, 100 year, 100 years after the fact, if you look at. Um, you know, the Civil War centennial celebrations that were very much whitewashed like that. And you come to the conclusion that, yeah, he's absolutely right. Uh, They did write this out of the story. But the veterans didn't, right? And I think that this is important. Now, the veteran story gets lost when the last of the veterans pass away in the you know first few decades of the 20th century. But the veterans' intentions were quite different. Uh, and this is what David Blight leaves out of his story, I think. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of a, you know, it's sort of a big, giant omission because we have to say, well, what did the veterans think about this? We know what they thought about it in the 1940s and 1950s, but what did the veterans think about it? And if you read, and, and, and I'll look at, you know, we'll talk about union uh, veterans first. Uh, if you read what they said, when they met together in, uh, in in fraternal organizations, there's a couple of very prominent ones. The uh, uh, 
uh, a loyal is it Malice military order, the Loyal Legion of the United States, and the other one, the, the prominent one, the Grand Army of the Republic, the GAR. When they would come together in these fraternal organizations, they would talk about their cause all the time, and they would commemorate their fight to end slavery. Um, in a sort of, uh, in, in sort of assuming this sense of moralizing self-righteousness, they weren't particularly excited about, you know, embracing their, uh, their fellow man as equals necessarily. They were, they had the racist sensibilities of the 19th century that you might imagine, but nevertheless, they still celebrated their fight to free a race from bondage. And this was very important to them, right? It was the other pillar of the union cause that was equal to union in many cases, which a lot of people have kind of forgotten, right? And so when they put these gigantic monuments up all across the North, I'm working on a piece right now on the Gettysburg battlefield specifically um, that I, I, I touch on in my book, but I really wanted to drill down and look specifically at these monuments. When they look at these monuments, when they, when they, they commemorate these monuments, that is a, a theme that resonates throughout, right? Uh, this idea that they had done something righteous, right? And they and, and and they would use those terms as this is like God's part of God's plan is that you know uh, and, and and it's it's very much a part of of their understanding of American exceptionalism and 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 and, and the United States as the beacon for the rest of the world of of free institutions and and in order to you know uh, in order to really perpetuate this idea of free institutions well emancipation naturally falls into that category right and so this is the thing that they. Uh, this is something that they celebrated frequently. And that's the story that I think has gotten lost, the intention there. Now that, I will readily admit, has sort of fizzled out of our you know, uh, historical memory up until recently. Now it's kind of returning. Uh, and I hope to be in the vanguard of that returning. And what interests me about a lot of these, this commemorative ethos, as you put it, is that it serves different functions as well. So it's not just about the intent of the storytellers, but then the effect it has on, on the listeners or the readers is also entirely different. It made me start to think, you know, when you think about something you mentioned to me before we chatted, the weaponization sometimes of commemoration and what can happen. Um, and is it even really possible, I wonder, do you think, for there to ever be a shared or collectively accurate memory on something that was so inherently divisive? How would that even really be possible if it's so acrimonious, there's two very different versions of what happened, what it meant, and why it happened. Does, is it even realistic generations later to expect any sort of alignment? Yeah, probably not. I mean, I think that was kind of, the, I think that was kind of the point of, of, of my book really is that, you know, these are, you know, limit, uh, reconciliation is very limited in that case. Now you can reconcile on, 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 on the surface ideas, but you really can't, I mean, these are irreconcilable ideas. They're two different, they're conflicting visions for the, for the United States. And when they, when they commemorated the war efforts, they were very specific in many cases about what those visions were. There's a really great book by, by a scholar uh, called Adam Dombey called, uh, the book is called The False Cause. Um, and it talks a great deal about, um, you know, uh, Confederate uh, commemorative activities. And he focuses in on the Silent Sam Monument, which is the, the, the infamous monument on the University of North Carolina campus. It was just a monument to a regular soldier. It wasn't any particular person, sort of a generic Confederate monument. And it stood there for a long time. And there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of grief, especially from, the, uh, from black students at University of North Carolina that, you know, were offended by a Confederate monument on the grounds of their campus. And I under, it's completely understandable why they might be offended by something like that. And so there was back and forth about having the monument removed. And Adam Dombey uh, went into the archives to, to find the dedication 
remarks uh, about this, you know, it took place during this monument. I think the monument was erected, and I'm going to be wrong about the date, either in the early 20th century or the very late 19th century. I don't recall, um, but I can I can look that up if you want. But anyway, the 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 person who read the dedicatory remarks was a guy named Julian Carr, and Julian Carr was a former Confederate uh, soldier, uh, and he read these remarks. And, and if you and if you <laughs> if you read the speech, uh, they're horrible. Uh, he talks a great deal about, you know, this was a, a, a fight for white supremacy. He goes into a vivid description of horse whipping a black woman who had dared to uh, to exert herself as a citizen, um, you know, and, and, and everybody applauds. You know, this is and this is not atypical. This is what, uh, you know, and, and there have been other scholars who have gone back and looked at these, you know, kind of remote, you know, courthouse lawn Confederate monuments. Uh, that are largely benign if you just look at them. Uh, but if you look at the ded- dedication speeches, you know, this, this is a resonating theme. This one, you know, this idea of uh, what scholars used to call Anglo-Saxonism back in the 19th century, this idea of the Anglo-Saxon race being superior, uh, you know, that, that, that was a kind of a cornerstone of, of, of 19th century and early 20th century into the mid 20th century scholarship. Um, on, on American history, this idea of Anglo-Saxonism, you know, it, it helped inform, you know, the justifications for segregation. It helped inform the justifications for American imperialism uh, into the Pacific, uh, the subjugation of, of various peoples, you know, uh, that, that in Guam and the Philippines and, you know, so forth and so on, right? I'm sure you know the story. Uh, but this idea helped justify all that kind of stuff. And it's in the Confederate monument speeches, right? It's there. And, and so it's, it's hard to separate those things now. Now, they, they don't appear uh, when you just look at, at a monument. It'll just say something like, you know, uh, like the one on Gettysburg, Virginia to her sons in Gettysburg. Well, that's not a particularly contentious statement. Yeah, you know? sounds innocuous. And yeah, it sounds nice, right? Uh, mm. But I mean, and, I, and I, I, don't, uh, I can't recall off the top of my head exactly what they said at the Virginia Monument dedication, so I don't want um, you know, to conflate everything. But still, you know, generally speaking, these monuments are pretty uh, are, are pretty benign. I think too, when you think about the culture of mourning, or even on a social emotional level, why do people mourn? Who are funerals for? What do monuments mean? If they're say survivors, offspring, brothers and sisters, um, I started to think about when I was reading your book and thinking on the Confederate side, which for me is is the the side that requires more understanding for me. You know, as as a non-historian, you know, civilian reader, right? Mm-hmm. And and someone who's from the West Coast, I really want to dig into those chapters, especially Keith. And I started to think: Do the, do the Southerners, whenever you think about their takeaways on causes and rationalizations, at some point commemoratively, even back then, if not now, was there some sort of valid, innate right to mourn? the fact that so many people bled in the dirt for whatever reason. And does that mean something different now when we talk about the inherent offensiveness of so many of these monuments and what they suggest, particularly with, um, you know, with the, the divisive issues we're facing in our country today um, and they're getting so much exciting media coverage. Do you think that there was sort of a valid need, you know, on the survivor side that maybe had a totally different significance than the intent of the storytellers and the veterans themselves. Yeah, you know that's such a great question, and and it's um, it's there's there's a nuanced answer to it. Um, I think 
Uh, and, and, you, and you have to be careful when you answer questions like this, because, you know, sometimes you'll say the wrong or, or something that's perceived in, in, a, in a wrong way and people get, you know, they go ballistic on you. Right. So you have to uh, you have to answer questions like that. And I've tried to do it publicly a number of times and maybe successfully, maybe not. It's hard to say. Um, but, yes, I think that uh, there is a justification for people to want to mourn the dead. Right. Regardless of their cause. Um one of the, the, you know, the things that uh, my own ancestors, my own ancestors are Confederates, by the way. I've got a number of them that fought Confederate armies, um, two of which I, uh, one of which I know a great deal about, another one of which I know something about. But I know, you know, where they fought. I know where they were wounded. I know, you know, those that survived. I know, all, I know about these guys, right? And, uh, you know, this is my flesh and blood, okay? So what am I supposed to do, hate them? You know, I, 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 this is, am I supposed to, 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 you know, reject them because of they stood up to be counted? Um, when, 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 when something uh, appeared before them that I find personally, uh, uh, deplorable, I find it just a horrible thing that, you know, that, that happened, but yet they did this. Okay. So you have to ask yourself a bunch of things when you're more in the dead. First of all, we can't possibly know why anybody decided to join the military in 1860, right? We can't possibly know why they did. There's any number of reasons why a person would have said, you know what, I am going to go sign up, uh, the 15th Alabama infantry regiment. Uh, I'm going to go sign up for that regiment, right? And um, my brothers did it. My cousins did it. Everybody in the, everybody in the community is looking at me going, why am I not doing it? I got to go do it. You know, hey, and also I've never been out of my, I've never left Lawrence County, Alabama. I sure would like to go out and uh, have the great adventure of my life, you know. Uh, and, and this is uh, any number of reasons. And that could include, you know, uh, I hear that the, the black Republican tyrannical Abraham Lincoln is going to come and take all of our stuff away from us. Right. It might include that or it might not. Right. We don't know unless they wrote it down. And even if they wrote it down, we've got to look and see why they wrote why they wrote. Right. So all of those things are happening at the same time. And I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook. But what I am trying to say is that all of these things happened at the same time. And so when somebody goes off into the army, well, technically now on a technicality, whether regardless of what they decided. Right. They're still pulling the trigger for the Confederate cause. So they are an agent of that cause, whether they, you know, agree with every single thing that that cause stands for or not. They are still an agent of that cause. You know, you can't really separate those two things. But at the same time, you know, uh, people have all kinds of motivating reasons, you know, motivational reasons. And so, you know, did they go? Did they, they lose their life? Is that a great tragedy? It's even a greater tragedy. They fought for such a, a horrible cause, I think, and then, and, and then lost their life or something. Uh, and so I, I think that we can mourn that. Right? This, this great conflagration, this great bloodletting, this great loss of life that came out. And if you want to you know, include, the entire, uh, include the entire nation here, not just Confederates, but it came out to be around 2% of the American population, according to the 1860 census. And that number has grown a little bit based on some research uh, by a guy named David Hacker that did some census research. So even more than that, maybe. It could be up to 850 or so thousand people, roughly, which is you know, somewhere shy of 3% of the population. Uh, it's a massive yes, number. If we if we if we if we bump those numbers to today, we'd be looking at ten, you know, eight eight to ten eight eight million people, right? That's a lot of people, uh, and this is a tragedy. This is a great tragedy. So, can we mourn this? Yeah, I think so, right? I think we can. I think we can mourn this great tragic event, uh, and I think there's you know it's tragic that it came to that uh, to 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 undo, you know, what is really the sin of the founding uh, of of the nation, which is slavery, which, you know, is, is with us from the very founding. Uh, and so, you know, that's how we had to undo it. We didn't undo it by, uh, an act of legislation like the English did, right? No, we did it through this horrendous war in which all these people, uh, all these people died. And we still haven't gotten over really 
I think, and this is my opinion, I don't think that we've really come together on the causes of it, the results of it, the legacy of it. I think that these things are still, you know, uh, very much contentious issues. And I, and I think if you, you know, turn on the news today, especially last summer, um, you know, <laughs> these arguments are just as, you know, just as vibrant as ever uh, about what all this stuff is about. And if, and if, you know, if honestly, when I, when I published this book that we're, that, you're, that we're discussing now, the, the book came out in, you know, 2014, it's based on research that I did like in the, you know, between uh, 2005 and 2010, things have changed. You know, when I wrote this book and when I published it, I was saying, yeah, you know, this is on its way out. Uh, you know, this is, this is something, this it was, it was my, it was my understanding that based on my research that things were getting, you know, things were stacking up against what we call the lost cause, the, the Confederate version of the story, things were stacking up against us. And that was, that was going to fade. I was Isn't wrong. Fascinating. Yeah. You were so wrong about that. 100% wrong. I was off the mark by a Confederate mile. It's now resurrected and it's just as powerful a voice as ever where we have, yes, no more. you know, we've got uh, state governors, members of Congress that are getting behind these ideas. Now these are all done by legislative process. Um, you know, getting these things removed, if it's a, whether it's a monument in a state house or a monument in front of a courthouse or a monument wherever. But um, these public monuments are, they were all put up, they had to raise money for them, they were all put up by legislative process. Now, when most of these went up, most of them, um, it was the late 19th, you know, first couple of decades of the 20th century. And guess who was enfranchised, enfranchised in the late 19th and early 20th century? And guess who was disenfranchised in the late 19th and early 20th century? So the people who voted on these things really, you know, the people who couldn't vote on these things had no say in these monuments going up. Of course, these are black people, right? And so now, now that that's, of course, all changed, thankfully, now that, you know, the legislative process, people vote on these things, these monuments are not representative of the body politic. Uh, they're just not. And so, you know, uh, I think what we, as all of us as Americans need to come to terms with is that the monuments don't represent the American people. They represent a very small fraction of the American people who did something, right, uh, that we should not celebrate, <laughs> we, you know. you know. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. I'm so glad you brought that up. And it's, it's interesting when you mentioned that um, that mourning has its place, but does it look different in the modern battle over Civil War memory, mm -hmm. and should it, you talk about the inherent offensive nature of a lot of the monuments to many, regardless of, of race or gender. Um, and, the, and the removal of these statues continues to be heavily divisive and was heavily featured in the media with our past president and Trump. It's not over yet. You're right. Um, I feel like it's it's almost, it's, it's, it's almost as if... Um, as if we're in a completely different place than when you wrote the book. I think we really are. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what you write next and to keep following the rogue historian mm -hmm. um, through your podcast and your amazing website. Um, but I, I wonder too, what you think about what's happening in terms of curriculum, you know, in schools specifically. So we, we're seeing it tried in media and in legislation, but you are also an educator, right? You're not just a scholar. You, I know for a fact that you teach young minds. And I'm just wondering, for example, with the Texas Senate bill that's suddenly dropped a lot of requirements on um, what we talk about when we talk about race, like civil rights movement, labor movement, ethnic cleansing of Native Americans, you know, that's being blocked right now in the Texas House of Reps, but it's still under fire, it would seem. It's still very much a question of where's this going? 
And do you think that we're in any danger of losing some storytelling? Yeah, I think we're in, we're in great danger of that. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunately lucky enough to teach um, in a private school in California where these kinds of mandates haven't really affected me at all. But I'm looking at my brothers and sisters teaching around the country, and I'm seeing a lot of anxiety about, you know, not only their future as teachers, right, but, uh, but what it is that they're going to be required to do. And 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 and, and, and here, here are some thoughts um, on that. I think that the anxiety is coming from, you know, uh, one side of the political spectrum against teaching, uh, you know, the, the, the horrible things of our nation's past, right? Slavery, uh, Jim Crow segregation, um, you know, uh, the way the United States government uh, has treated the indigenous peoples uh, uh, in the past. I think that they're concerned that, you know, uh, a lot of curriculum has started leaning towards teaching that and emphasizing that at the expense of other things. Right, the old uh, sort of traditional way of teaching history, like you know, when I went to grade school, and excuse me, in the nineteen seventies, you know, we got the sort of like you know the founding fathers, and you know, we, and, and 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 all the wonderful things that they accomplished, and, and all the wonderful things that have happened in this sort of progress, the progress, you know, the sort of what we call Whiggish history, where everything just keeps getting better and better, and here we are, right, the the greatest place in the world. Well, uh, there are you know there are a lot of lenses through which I think we need to look at. American history and and all of those lenses have a place, and so I can understand the anxieties of particular you know of parents especially. I mean sometimes this is a political football, right? And but I want to I, I don't want to give them the credit that they don't deserve because all they're trying to do, if you ask me, and I'm a cynic, but all I think that those guys are trying to do is get Twitter likes and to sell their crappy ghost written books. Okay, so there's that. Um, but real concerns from parents who are concerned that they're getting a like a singular view. Of American history, where that that and if, and if that singular view is the view of America is an oppressive white supremacist state, it's the way it started, and that's the way it is, and nothing's changed. I can understand those, I can understand those issues, I can understand those concerns because that is only one lens through which to look at American history. There's lots of things that have happened in American history, and and I I would say that that's an overly simplistic way of looking at it, and that American history is vastly more complicated than we could ever even imagine. Right. Uh, with all the different things that are going on, it's all interconnected. It twists and ties. It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's an intricate web of, of, of things that we need to try to get our head around. Oppression is one of those things. OK, uh, you know, and, and, and we need to understand it. Right. So we need to understand, you know, the, 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 the motivation behind someone who would seek to oppress another group of people for whatever reason. We need to understand that. But we also need to understand the people who fought against that person who sought to oppress a group for any number of reasons. Those guys exist too, right? All the way back to the founding, all the way back to before the founding uh, of the United States. The debates on, you know, uh, 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 the Constitution, for example, are 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 really interesting to read because it isn't just like a, you know a sort of monolithic, you know, we are founding this country by design to be a white supremacist nation and therefore oppress everyone uh, who isn't white by design, right? That, that, there are people who say that's a great idea, but there are also people who say that's a terrible idea. We shouldn't do this, right? And they argue with each other about it. So it's not as clear cut as some people might have you think, right? There are, you know, there are stories of triumph over adversity. You know, I'd like to say that we need to emphasize also, there are stories of communities that despite being you know, uh, treated as second-class citizens, still came together and 
you know, work to overcome those things. Those stories are equally powerful to me. And you have to include all of these things together. Uh, and, and, and then once we begin to include all these things, and, and listen, race is just one gender. There, uh, one, one, one lens to looking at gender lens. You can look at regional lens, sectional lens. You can look at you know, urban versus rural. You can look at rich versus poor. There's all there's a zillion different lenses to look through history, right? I like hearing that. I think that's a great way to, to frame it. You've, you've mentioned to me before we, we chatted here that you were interested in weaponization of history. Tell me more about that. And when you think of it either from one side of an aisle or one side of the Potomac or across a, a globe, or if you think of it even from weaponization by an actual state for their own purposes, how do you think about that? Oh, I think that, that it drives me insane um, because I think it's the most ahistorical process that you can, that you can, that you can uh, undertake. As an historian, um, you know, what we do is and I'm oversimplifying it here a little bit, but what we do is we don't come up with the conclusions first and then go back into the historical record to find the things that illustrate our conclusions, our gut, what we feel. What we do is we come up with the questions. You know, why do people do this? Why did this event unfold the way it unfolded? Why did we get to this from point A to point B? Why, why, why? Let's go into the historical record and ask the historical actors because, you know, especially in you know, my field, 19th century American history and early 20th century a little bit, it's very text heavy. So we can find... Uh, the documents. You know, we can find the correspondence, we can find the personal diaries, we can find the newspapers, we can find the congressional debates, we can find whatever it is, right? Um, and and then ask them, right? You ask them and they'll tell you. Now, they're not, they're not going to be all of one voice. And so you've got to put the pieces together and find the common themes. Uh, and then we can sort of get ourselves closer to the truth, if an objective truth actually exists, and I know it's probably impossible to, you know, ever obtain an objective truth because we're all colored by our biases, but to to try to piece together those various strands of evidence from all different sources, and when we begin to see the commonalities, the themes come together, we can begin to reconstruct history, and 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 put it together as a narrative, it's like. Based on the evidence, this is why we believe that we got from point A to point B. Now, if I start with point B, which is the outcome, the conclusions, and I look around and I say, this is what's happening. And I go, you know what? It's because of this. And I haven't looked at the evidence yet. Well, you know, that's just a gut. You know, I might as well be chasing ghosts. That's just a gut feeling, right? Now, the weaponization of history is something that I think is actually pretty dangerous because what we get are these sort of people who aren't interested in coming up with with the answers, people who are interested in getting closer to the objective truth, uh, whatever that might be, they're not interested in that. They're interested in enforcing an agenda uh, for either you know political reasons or in this. And I'm not picking on anybody. Trust me, this is across the political yeah. spectrum. Okay, right. so they're either looking for advancing an agenda for political reasons, perhaps for personal reasons, for monetary gain. Um, uh, who knows? Maybe they driving want to, behavior in some direction. Maybe they want to get to a hundred thousand likes on Twitter. I don't know. Whatever they want to do, they have an ulterior motive, right? And so, when you weaponize history to, you know, uh, to to do that, that means you're 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 very being very selective about the historical events that you pick, right? And so, I can come up with any conclusion, and I can go back into the historical narrative, and I can find one person, who you know, one thing that will support my conclusion, right? And I can say, see, boom. Everybody else is idiots. And if you don't listen to me, then, you know, you're all going to uh, die or whatever. You know, you're all going to, you know, be uh, subjected to the most tyrannical 
oppression that you could possibly imagine. So listen to me because everybody else is wrong, you know? So um, that, that kind of weaponization, I think, is dangerous. I really do. Uh, no matter from where it comes, you know, anybody who deliberate, and this is intentional, by the way, I think this is intentional when you, when you selectively choose things, knowing full well that there's lots of other stuff out there that doesn't align with your agenda. If you ignore those things and don't account for those things, then you're doing a great disservice to the discipline. That's why I tell my students, like, look, I know that you guys think a lot of things. You can go back into the record and find it. But if you find something that counters your claim, you can't just ignore it and hope it goes away thinking, you know, because it doesn't align with your conclusion. You've got to account for it. Now, you still may be right, but you still you do have to account for this other thing that doesn't fit. Okay. So, so how do you bring that into the narrative? How do you do that? And this is why his, history is such a, a, a much more difficult discipline than I think people uh, really understand. I think a lot of people look at history as just a series of things that happened and there you go. That's it. But there, <laughs> but there's all different ways. It's not just that. I mean, it's the, the way people interpret those things that happened. And you and I are having a conversation right now. If, uh, if you know, at the end of this conversation, we, you and I go record in our journals what happened today. And, you know, there'll be some things that are the same, but you and I may have different perceptions of what took place today. And we write those things down. Which one of us is right? Right? right. If we went to an event and we, were, we talked about what happened at that event, say it's a wedding, it's not the same wedding. Right. It's your it's Keith's version of the wedding, wedding or Matthew's my version. version. Precisely. Right. right. I, I appreciate that. I think that's, that, that is why you bring so much care to your work and you see it as so delicate um not delicate like it can break but delicate in in terms of the burden of trying to get it right and trying to see clearly because I, I once had a friend who was a writer who taught me how to write a bit and he said uh to see a thing clearly is to create beauty the idea being that if if it's not if you can't even see it you're kind of in the dark and, and, and things get broken in the dark, you know, yeah. <laughs> things don't do well uh, when they're not in the light. Um, to pivot and, and wrap up, tell us a little bit about what's going on with your research now and, and what's next for The Rogue Historian. You, were, you alluded a little earlier to it. Well, okay, great. So uh, right now I'm working on, um, uh, well, I'm working on a couple of other side projects, but my major project right now is, is really looking, on, uh, looking at the monument uh, dedication ceremonies at the battlefield. Of Gettysburg, the Union ones. Um, I think that the Confederates are getting the lion's share of attention these days when it comes to interpreting monuments, and and, and we need to understand them. Don't get me wrong, but but we but we don't want to uh, we don't want to you know forget about the people who actually won that war, um, and and their experience commemorating a victory and what that victory meant. Uh, you know the 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 assurance that the Union would prevail, uh, that slavery would be no more. Uh, these were very important uh, pillars of the commemorative landscape, the, the, the commemorative ethos uh, of, of the United States veterans. Uh, and so I don't want that to get lost. And, and, and I believe it has uh, to some degree anyway. I think it's fascinating. So I'm working on that right now. Um, and, and, and we'll see where all that goes. But that's going to be really interesting. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. I mean, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. I'm working on a, uh, you know, some chapters on that over the summer. It's been my, kind of my project. I love it. Well, Keep writing and, and we'll keep reading. Thanks. I will. Great talking with you. And um, thanks again for being here. Of course. My pleasure. You can learn more about Keith's work on his website, keithharrishistory.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Hey You podcast.